0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia's Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. Right now, we are still in 2020. It is Wednesday morning, and I have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to discuss Point 43 in his... 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, this is the 21st segment in this series. Having finally finished with proof 42 and our discussion of words, which are generally mistranslated or misunderstood throughout the entire Bible, now we turn to particular passages where certain words are mistranslated or misunderstood, which also adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the entire bible so how you feel about a particular passage whether it's right or wrong may bias your opinion when you encounter other passages hello truth Vids. thank you for being here
1: Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, we can continue with the mistranslations, starting off with the Old Testament. And um, I just wanted to say that um, a a lot of people have, uh, unfortunately, a misconception that, um, you know, once they start to wake up a bit, they realize the world isn't what it is, and sometimes they turn to the Bible, that they believe that, they can just read genesis and without having any prior knowledge or never reading the bible before that they can decode it or try to understand it and people need to realize that the bible isn't written that way it's written the way that you have to read it all in order to understand genesis and as you've said many times especially through the view of Christ. You need to read all of the Gospels, and especially listen to Christ, and believe what he says, and then go back and reread the Bible, because he came to reveal it. And a lot of people have difficulty with that. It, It doesn't mean that, you know, like the old popes used to say, that only they have the wisdom to understand it. It just means that you have to fully study the bible all the way through before you'll be able to understand what's going on in genesis and many other verses in the old testament and here we can clarify a lot of that as well as many of the mistranslations but starting off especially with the whole cain thing that causes a lot of problems where people insist that cain is a descendant of adam and hopefully we can begin with that right bill
0: well, well, right, we will begin with cain and and that's the 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 best place to start is a little before Cain in Genesis chapter two so so we'll begin there however you're absolutely right. you cannot understand the Old Testament unless you you 've read it, and then you've also read the New Testament because, as Christ said in I'm sorry. And as it's written of Christ, because it's not really a direct quote, the way Matthew worded it, because it's written of Christ, that he came to reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world. That plainly means that there are things in Genesis that we're not fully told, that are not fully explained through Genesis, But once Christ has revealed those things, we can go back to Genesis and understand the parables and what is being spoken and and fill in some of the blanks, like if Adam was the first man, then how did a cognizant, talking, thinking being called a serpent that wasn't necessarily a snake appear in the garden? As soon as Adam was created, the serpent was already there and and set out to entice Adam and Eve into sin. So how did that happen? We understand that with the gospel and the revelation. You can't understand that simply with Genesis. It wasn't designed that way by God or else it would not have been said of Christ that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So you can't understand Genesis. And and the corroboration for that interpretation of that statement in Matthew is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I believe it is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where, where Paul of Tarsus had, had written that you cannot understand the Old Testament unless you come to Christ. That a veil is placed over Moses. I'm sorry, it's in 2 Corinthians. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That a veil is placed over the Old Testament, and that veil is not lifted until you come to christ then you can understand the old testament that's the words of paul of tarsus and he used the veil the account in genesis of the veil over the face of moses as an analogy to make that point that you can't understand the old testament until you come to christ until you read the gospels and and the revelation and understand what christ is saying then you can't understand the Old Testament. So that is Paul's witness and corroboration of what Matthew had written in Matthew chapter 13. So
1: if Christians... Yeah, and that's... um, Sorry. Go on, go on. I was just going to say that's probably not how people would imagine the Bible was written, that it's written that you have to believe what Christ says... And then you will understand the Bible. That's just how God wanted it to be, that you have to believe him first and only then will you understand the Bible. And that's just the way it is, even if you think that it should be written a different way. Well, that's just the way it is.
0: Well, well, right. And And once you, being a Christian, understand these things that are in the New Testament, then... Not only can you understand Genesis and and the origins of our race a lot more properly, but you can also come to the realization that no Jew who denies Christ can ever understand the Old Testament no Jew, no Muslim, that these people are are liars and deceivers. They cannot understand the Old Testament. I don't care how much learning they think they have, how much Kabbalah, how much Torah, how much Talmud they think they have. They're lying. They cannot understand that book. And if you think they can, then you haven't listened to Christ or to Paul. They're blinded. They're going to remain blinded because they reject Christ. So understanding the parables and and believing what he says about the parables from a first century viewpoint, not from a crazy Judeo-Christian viewpoint, and, and we'll discuss this a little further on this evening. When you understand what Christ said from a first century viewpoint, In the context in which he is uttering those words then everything makes perfect sense and all the pieces fit into place and and you can understand genesis you may not be able to translate or or, or figure out some of the corruptions in genesis but you can understand exactly what's transpiring in genesis because certain passages are corrupt in the books of moses you could find that in Jeremiah chapter eight, verse eight where and and even Christ himself had cited this passage in the Gospel where, where it says that you think you have the law, but the lying scribes have turned it into a lie, you think you have the law of the lord and and that's why none of us can follow that law perfectly because even though we could generally understand what it says, and, and we can know what's evil and what is good, we can't follow the letter of the law perfectly because the scribes had corrupted certain things. We need the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. We never will understand Moses without Christ, and that's what Paul is saying in Second Corinthians chapter 3. I can't stress this enough so that Christians understand the dangers of following these Jewish interpretations, which the churches began to accept as soon as they were founded 1,700 years ago. The churches began to accept Jewish interpretations of scriptures, and they have always been wrong. Always. Always because they followed the Jews who can't understand the scriptures because they reject Christ. It's that simple.
1: Yeah, and um, as for Christ's parables and teachings, if they were just put in a vacuum, it's very easy to understand what he's saying. It's only when people try to, with their their already corrupted perspective, they try to twist it to fit what they already believe, and that's clearly the wrong way. You need to uh, believe what Christ said, as, as we said, and then change your views so that it fits what Christ says, and then make the Bible fit what Christ is saying, right?
0: Well, well right. If, if Christians believe, as they should, that he is the light come into the world, that he is the Word made flesh, then nobody understands what the Bible Should say, because there were already corruptions by the time of his advent, of his incarnation, there were already corruptions in Scripture, but we must believe him first if we're ever going to understand Scripture. So we have to take his words as the word made flesh and understand the Old Testament through that lens. And and I've explained this 10, 12 years ago in papers, that that was necessary. And, and it's hard for some people to comprehend that. They just want to pick up the Bible and start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and understand it. So that leads to all sorts of sophistry in interpretations of what Genesis means. All sorts of sophistry and and we see also and 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 that forces people to turn to greek philosophers and other ancient writings to understand this now some other ancient writings can help us understand some of the parables some of the language in the parables because they use similar allegories and idioms among the assyrians and the sumerians but no we can't take the pagan literature and understand genesis solely by pagan literature we have to follow christ first and if we don't choose to do that i don't know how we could call ourselves christians because he is that light can come into the world we are not going to see without him it's that simple this And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. What is that light? Because the sun, moon, and stars are all created later, a few verses later. (laughs) They're not created yet. So there was a light that existed before the sun, moon, and stars, before we could possibly have light. Christ is that light that was created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. The physical manifestation of God in the world was created first. And at first, that was represented in diverse ways by pillars of fire and and pillars of smoke and things like that. But at his incarnation, that's represented by the person of Jesus Christ, of Yahshua Christ, who is yahweh god in the flesh and and he is for that reason that genesis chapter 1 verse 3 light come into the world they would rather use um philosophical interpretations to explain that light and the philosophical interpretations are are the wisdom of men they are always going to fail with that we we have titled or or more precisely you could blame this on me um, this point forty three or proof number forty three specific Old Testament verse misteachings, mistranslations, or corruptions. Some of these are corruptions, some of them are just plain misconceptions. they're not necessarily mistranslations. so it it's that there are several several key issues with key verses that must be rectified in order for the words of Christ to be true. And we hope to point out at least most of these now. So with that, we should probably begin with Genesis chapter two, verse nine. I don't know if you have anything to say before we begin.
1: Yeah, people always try to twist this and make it that it's about beliefs that, um, you know, if you believe in the tree of life, you're following Christ, who didn't appear for what was it, six thousand years later? And if you believe in the tree of knowledge of good of evil, then you're following the devil. But but as we will show, if you've actually read the whole Bible and studied it, it becomes clear it's always race. And and that's the issue here.
0: Well well, right at the end of um Genesis chapter three, that there's a promise and it, it's, it's, a promise to, it's a promise of Christ. I see it as a promise of Christ and redemption in that sense. But in another sense, it says that lest the man put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Well, that had to be something tangible that the race of Adam could cling to. And, of course, if it's opposed to another tree which they ate from and, and fell from the grace of God, it must be a reference to clinging on to their own tree, their own race, as we hope to show in, in, in a few paragraphs right now. And, and this is, I believe, the first misteaching or misconception which is not to properly recognize the allegories of Genesis chapters two and three, even if they cannot be fully understood until Christ explained them in the parables and visions of the gospel and the revelation. In Genesis chapter two, there are two trees which are different from all the other trees. All of the actual wooden trees created by God were made to come out of the ground, and they were made to be good for food. But two other trees are mentioned apart from those trees. As we first read in that same chapter in verse 9, and out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it says, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the midst of the garden, but Yahweh God didn't necessarily make them to grow out of the ground so that they could be good for food the tree of knowledge of good and evil certainly is not good for food because they were commanded not to eat Ovid. So these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are distinct and they're not growing out of the ground. They're simply in the midst of the garden. Throughout scripture, Trees are used as allegories for races or nations of people. That's very clear. Uh, I believe it's in Ezekiel chapter 35 or or Ezekiel chapter 31, perhaps, where it is an analogy or an allegory of, of these trees. The Assyrian was the tallest tree of the garden. Or, or something like that, and, and ruled over all the other trees. And it's talking about the Assyrian Empire of Ezekiel's time, which was actually about to fall as Ezekiel wrote those words. So it, it's Ezekiel chapter 31. Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches. So that's one of the most striking allegories which use trees to represent races or nations of people but that's not the only one in scripture there are many others and it is my contention or our contention i should say that genesis chapter 2 verse 9 is the first place where we see that so later in the gospel christ identifies the tree of life where he says in john chapter 15 i am the true vine And my father is the husbandman. The father planted the tree of life. He put it in the midst of the garden. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you, speaking to his disciples, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you as The branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. That's simply another way to say, keep my commandments and I and my Father will come and and dwell with you. Proclaiming that he is the true vine also reveals the possibility that there is a spurious vine. There's a vine that's not a true vine. Later in the Revelation, and and some people might say, oh, that has to do with belief or, 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 or whether or not you accept the gospel, and that's simply not true because later in the Revelation, where the city of God is described, having inscribed on its gates the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. We see language in chapter 21 of the Revelation, which evokes the promise of a new covenant as it was made to the children of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37. And it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And that tabernacle of God is the person of Jesus Christ, of Yahshua Christ. That is the tabernacle of God. Then, in Revelation chapter 22, we see another allegorical description. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, the tabernacle of God. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life which bear 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is not talking about a literal tree. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him by healing of the nations. And they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. There, it is apparent that the 12 manner of fruits on the tree of life are also the 12 tribes of the children of Israel.
1: But while And, the and tree that of... connects back to that um, verse in Genesis, right, where Adam has to cling to the tree of life. Only the children of Israel made it to the end. They're the only ones who uh, followed that commandment, uh, well, you know, by clinging to their own uh, Adamic race or all the other... Um, adamic people left the tree of life and that's why they're not here anymore and that's why only um the 12 tribes are there at the end in revelation right
0: right exactly because there's a deeper meaning to the parable of clinging to the tree of life that's mentioned in genesis chapter 3 verse 22 and then we see in genesis chapter 3 verse 22 24. And I've already explained this in, in many presentations, so I didn't think to include it in my notes this evening, so it probably won't be there, but that's okay. And, and he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now the mainstream denominational Christians interpret that to mean the opposite of what it says. They think that the cherubim's are placed there in order to prevent Adam from getting back to the tree of life until Christ comes. And that's not true. That's simply not true. Adam was told he must cling to the tree of life in order to to live. And have life. Well, the next time those cherubims are seen, they, they are atop the Ark of the Covenant. And they are keeping the mercy seat and the law, which is inside the Ark of the Covenant. So the cherubims represent the keeping of the law, which leaves us the path to Christ to that tree of life. By keeping the law, we will live. And even when we didn't keep the law and we were destroyed, the children of Israel were nevertheless granted mercy and Christ came for them. I have come but unto the lost sheep in the house of Israel so that cherubim and the law and Christ tells us to keep his commandments so that we will live so that we will have life. The law, keeping the law, which Adam broke in Genesis chapter 2 when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3, following his wife, Adam broke that one law that he was given. And that law is, is important in understanding the identity of the tree of life. And, and we'll get into that briefly. But the cherubim, being placed on on the ark of the covenant where the law was kept we see that the law is actually the path to the tree of life that that's what the cherubim were guarding so this genesis chapter 3 verse 24 doesn't necessarily look all the way ahead to christ it looks to the giving of the law and moses declared when the law was given that the man doing these things shall live by them. The man doing these things shall have life by keeping the law. So that is what the children of Israel had to hold on to until the coming of Christ was the law. And that's what the cherubim were were doing was assuring that the path to Christ would stay open. Because even though most of Israel were put off, in punishment. There was always that remnant in Jerusalem that even if they didn't follow the law, they nevertheless kept the law, so that when Christ came, people knew what he was talking about. That was the connection to Moses, that 70 weeks kingdom in ancient Judea, where only some of the tribe of Judah and Levi and Benjamin returned to Jerusalem and reestablished the second temple that was the connection and this is explained very well in in the prophecy in daniel chapter 9 that was the connection of the keeping the law down to the time of christ so that when christ appeared people still had scriptures people still had bibles the the bibles of those days and people understood what christ was talking about because they knew their scriptures at least some people did, and others rejected him, but they were meant to reject him because they weren't his sheep. So this is a complicated story, but it's, the entire narrative is very clear, and every piece fits together perfectly once you study the New Testament and accept the words of Christ and then go back and re-examine Genesis and, and these other events in between. So the cherubim kept the way to the tree of life by guarding the law and making sure that the path to Christ, so that his people could understand him, remained in place, and it did. If Christ had come and and um, decided to be born in Germany or... or on on the steps of of the Ukraine or Southern Russia or whatever, in in some strange place where people never had the law or or the covenants or, or that connection to the past, which was maintained in Jerusalem, then what sense could he have made to anybody? They would have had no background necessary to understand him. So we need to read the Old Testament and have that background necessary to understand Christ in the New Testament, but then we have to accept what Christ says in the New Testament and go back to Genesis and understand it better because we can't understand it completely without Christ. So I'm probably making a lot of circumlocutions and, and digressions, but they are probably necessary. While the tree of life, was, which was mentioned in Genesis is found in the revelation after all of the enemies of God have been destroyed and after the beast and the false prophet the devil and all of his angels and all of the goat nations have been cast into the lake of fire the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mentioned in Genesis is not found in the revelation and this is in spite of the fact that those entering into the city are they that do his commandments. So they will still be cognizant of the law, which teaches good and evil. But the tree isn't there. So it is apparent that if the tree of life is an allegory for a race of people, then the tree of knowledge of good and evil is also an allegory for a race of people. And we see in Revelation chapter 12 that the leader of the fallen angels, the rebellious angels, is one and the same with that old serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And in that we find the identity of the Nephilim, or fallen ones, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is elucidated. In that understanding, it's revealed that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this race of the fallen angels that the serpent represented. And that's how they got into the garden in the midst of the garden when Adam was created.
1: So the serpent is like the leaders or, or the intelligence leading the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil or, or and, the uh, other races
0: evidently, believing that since Yahweh God didn't create these other races, that these other races must be corruptions, which came of those rebellious fallen angels. And when we read, this is another thing that isn't in the notes here, but when we read the um, Enoch literature and other ancient apocryphal literature, we find that very thing, That's what we find in the copies of Enoch among the Dead Sea Scrolls is that these rebellious angels were miscegenating not only with men, but the entire creation. That is also the account we see in Genesis chapter 6. So once again, Adam was given a single law not to eat of that tree Yet, in the parable of Genesis chapter 3, he ate of the tree, following his wife, and he was punished with death, even if the sentence was not immediately executed. Cain committed murder, but he was not executed, according to the law, since there was not yet a law given against murder. As Paul later said in Romans chapter 5, Sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. So when the Nephilim, the giants of Genesis chapter 6, when the Nephilim took wives of the daughters of Adam, the entire Adamic race was once again published with death, and the sentence was immediately executed, except that in the preservation of Noah, was ensured that the, it was ensured that the word of God in those opening chapters of Genesis would not fail. It must be that the Adamic people of Genesis chapter six had broken the same law as their first father, Adam, in order for them to have been justly punished. So this is another way that the identity of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is revealed because that's what they were eating from. That's what they were doing when these so-called sons of God or sons of heaven, where it says sons of God in certain manuscripts of the Sethogen it says angels instead. And in the Enoch literature, it says sons of heaven, not sons of God, which also is a reference to those rebellious fallen angels, the Nephilim.
1: And um, eating is just a polite way of saying slept with or laid with, right? I mean, it's pretty yes. evident.
0: It, it can be established, and, and it could be established in, in ancient literature, where, as I mentioned, the same allegories and analogies very often appear, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, that this to eat, to eat of fruit, to um, touch a woman. And we see this also in the Proverbs and later scriptures, that these things can be used as allegories for sexual contact, for sexual intercourse. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, it becomes apparent that to know good and evil And to be like gods, those terms represent sexual awakening and the learning of reproduction through sexual intercourse because you create another person through sexual intercourse. And those terms that we see in Genesis chapter 3 were used precisely in that same manner in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So why is that significant? That's significant because the Epic of Gilgamesh was a very famous ancient work of literature from a people who had spoken a language very similar to the ancient Hebrews. They spoke a Semitic language and they wrote this Epic of Gilgamesh, which was repeated in the akkadian literature of the assyrians who spoke a semitic language and the aramaic literature of the babylonians aramaic also being a language very close to hebrew and the epic of gilgamesh actually can be proven pretty much in archaeology to be from a time earlier than abraham himself so it was a famous work of literature At the time that Moses was a young man growing up and being educated in Egypt, the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls that speak about the giants. So we see that Gilgamesh was one of the Nephilim or fallen ones.
1: And if you um, have offspring, sorry, I was going to say it's like being a god, right? You're creating... um you know, a new tree, a life form, like, like a God. So it makes sense that they say you will be like a God if you, um, have children. And also I just wanted to add, um, there's the term these days, um, that a man can deflower a woman, right? If he takes her virginity away, even today, there's still that term, which ties in with eating of the fruit.
0: Well, well, absolutely. But, but my main point is that, Gilgamesh was very famous literature in the ancient world. It was known um, by a large ancient audience. It's very widespread. And Moses, being an educated man and using a very similar language, would have naturally had, the, had used similar allegories and, and analogies from the literature of his time and some of those same allegories used in that literature appear in Genesis chapter 3 in a very similar context, so they must have similar meaning.
1: Yeah, it's just like if you read the King James Version and then you read Shakespeare, they're close around the same time, so the language is very similar, right?
0: Yes, Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. That being said, a third way of identifying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is found in the parable of the tares of the field in Matthew chapter 13. And the parable of the net, and and we discussed the parable of the tares at length last week, so I won't repeat it all, but the tares were a plant that was sown by the devil, a whole species of plant that was sown into the field by the devil. And the parable of the net lends further support to that interpretation as it reveals that there are good and bad races of people where Yahweh God created nothing that was bad. So how did we end up with people that are bad? Because the the kingdom of heaven is like a net that takes up every kind of fish in the sea. And that word kind is from the word genea. It means race. And the good are stored in vessels. But the bad are thrown into the fire and destroyed. They're not even put back in the sea. God didn't create anything bad. So that bad kind of fish must be bad because it didn't come from God. It's a bad kind. They're not simply disbelievers or naughty people because sinners are saved. It's a bad kind because of their origin, the circumstances of their origin. They're from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is bad and which can't even be eaten for food. So in our understanding, all of these pieces being stitched together create a perfect tapestry which pictures precisely what the Scripture is teaching and explains mundane things, such as how there could be any law against fornication or any pursuit of strange flesh, as Jude describes it. If all races had come from Adam in the first place, if all races were come from Adam, there could not be a law against fornication, the pursuit of strange or different flesh, which is race mixing. How do we have that law? There are such laws only be- because only one race comes from Adam. And the others are all branches on the tree of those rebellious angels, the Nephilim, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing that explains that, that these are indeed races of people. And wherever we go in the Gospels of Christ, we can substantiate that very thing. That there's, um, Christ gives all these parables, for example, Telling his disciples not to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. And the Judeo Christians will say that, oh, thorns and thistles are unbelievers. They just don't believe. And that's a ridiculously childish interpretation of that statement. And I'll explain why. Because Christ is telling this to his immediate disciples right, in Judea in the first century, up to that point, there are no unbelievers, because there are no believers, because the gospel hasn't been spread yet. So how could the apostles go up to a group of people and determine who the believers are and who the unbelievers are? Yet they're told not to gather grapes from thorns or figs from fiss- thistles. The truth is that Christ is talking about races and nations of men. Don't go to a nation or, or a race of thorns like the Edomites and expect to find grapes. Men don't gather grapes from thorns. So these parables and, and all these warnings and sayings of Christ... They only make sense in the light of the fact that there are different races and some are good and some are bad.
1: Yeah, and you can see beforehand, if you go to pick grapes, you can see if it's a grape or a thorn. You don't pick it and then later find out, like, you know, a believer or non-believer. It's very clear in that sense, right?
0: Well, Well, right, absolutely. You'll have perfect warning going to gather grapes that you just don't go gather them among thorns or figs from thistles. Figs come out of fig trees. So if you're looking for fruit, you have to go to a fig tree to find figs. This brings us to the next verse that we want to discuss, and that's Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Because this is, that there are so many sophists that Imagine that we haven't seen this verse when we try to explain these things. And they get to this verse and they say, aha, this proves everything wrong. You're not telling the truth. Cain was the son of Adam. And do and, and they really think we missed this verse, that we haven't considered it? I, I don't get that. I, I, I never understood that. That, that uh-huh. Yeah, and some people
1: say that it's impossible for the Bible to have been corrupted or, you know, got, Yahweh would never allow that or um, that, that it would shock people and, and they think, well, what else has been corrupted? But but if you understand, as you said, about the Kenite the lying Kenites with, with their pen, the first thing, the Kenites are the descendants of Cain. The one thing they would want to cover up is where Cain come from, right? And uh, as we'll explain, that the verse has been tampered with. But again, as we said at the beginning, if you understand that Christ allowed it so that he could then reveal the truth again, it all makes sense and the Bible's fine, right?
0: Well, well absolutely. In, in um, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, how do you say, We are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? How do you say that? Lo, certainly, in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. And, and that's not very well translated in the King James Version. It's translated a lot better in the Septuagint or in the North American Standard Version And the North American Standard Bible is based on the same Masoretic text that the King James is. And the same verse says, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. In Breton Septuagint, in case you don't get that, how will you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? In vain had the scribes used a false pen. So, there are elements in the Torah or in the law, which are the books of Moses, the first five books of Scripture. There are elements which are not true, which have been corrupted by the scribes. And the Scripture tells us, It's been corrupted by the scribes. The Bible itself is telling us that. I believe that was cited somewhere in the New Testament. I probably won't find it right away. (sighs) However, the point is that that verse is found in Jeremiah chapter 8. And Jeremiah was writing from probably about, 630 or 620 BC down to the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 585 BC so if if the um, the scriptures were corrupted by the time of Jeremiah how could we imagine that what we have today is without corruption because Jeremiah already said that the scribes had Corrupted at at least some elements of the law. We need the New Testament and the understanding of Christ, even to understand the law. Regarding Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, this particular verse is the only verse in Scripture where it is implied, but not proven, that Adam had fathered Cain. Yet there are many other circumstances. And verses in scripture that indicate that Adam did not father Cain. And to assert that Cain was actually fathered by the serpent or devil. So it is not right to insist that Adam was the father of Cain with only a single witness while there are multiple witnesses which refute that insistence. Adam was only Cain's father because upon his having accepted Eve, he accepted responsibility for Cain, just as the angel of Yahweh encouraged Joseph to accept Mary when she was conceived of the Christ. So Joseph accepted responsibility for the Christ child. In fact, the ancient Christian work known as the protoevangelion of james makes that very same analogy comparing the circumstances of the birth of cain to the circumstances of the birth of christ it makes that very same analogy in the very same context but the fact that the hebrew of genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is corrupt has been acknowledged by at least some mainstream denominational scholars So I'm going to quote a couple of short paragraphs from a paper on this subject by Clifton Emmeheiser, which he probably wrote, I'm guessing, probably 18 years ago, maybe 15 to 18 years ago. This is from the problem with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And in it, he said, The Interpreter's Bible, a 12-volume collaborative work, of 36 consulting editors and 124 other contributors makes the following observation on this verse. And I have this interpreter's Bible on my bookshelf behind me now. Perhaps I'll try to scan the page and include it with this presentation. Cain seems originally to have been the ancestor of the Kenites. The meaning of the name is metalworker or smith. Here, however, it is represented as a derivation of a word meaning acquire, get, one of the popular etymologies frequent in Genesis. Hence the mother's words, I have gotten a man. Now there's a period, and it says, From the Lord, as the KJV has it, It has KJV in parentheses there. From the Lord is a rendering, following the setugent and vulgate of eth Yahweh, which is literally with Yahweh, and so unintelligible here. And now they have a parenthetical remark that the words the help of which are seen in the Revised Standard Version, is not in the Hebrew. That is translators trying to add words to it to make sense, for it to make sense. They're trying to add words to it that aren't in the original text, so they had to note that. So, F-Yahweh, which is literally with Yahweh, is so unintelligible here, it seems probable that F should be off Now they themselves are guessing, right? So the mark of Yahweh and that the words are a gloss. Now a gloss is simply an error in in copying scripture that is caused by sound-alike words. But here, these words are not necessarily a gloss, I wouldn't accept that. They're trying to make sense of why the grammar of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, in the later clause, why the grammar of that clause is wrong and doesn't make any sense. It's unintelligible. So they're saying perhaps, or it seems probable, that F should be off so the mark of yahweh well where did they get that from where is it ever seen that cain bears the mark of yahweh it's not cain was marked but that 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 doesn't have to be a reference to that marking they're just guessing secondly clifton says the interpreter's one volume commentary on the Bible edited by Charles Lehman, makes the following comment on this passage on page six. Quoting, under circumstances which are obscure, verse 1b, and and this refutes the the, the, um, conjecture of auth for F in, in the larger interpreter's Bible. Under circumstances which are obscure, verse 1b, can scarcely be translated, still less understood. So Charles Layman, and I believe he is doing this correctly, that he's right about this, that verse 1b has missing text or errant text from an early time, because this is reflected in the Septuagint as well, from an early time, that can't be translated or understood because it's corrupt for one reason or another. The text is corrupted. And Laman goes on to say, his younger brother was named Abel, which suggests the Hebrew word for breath. And we would say, yes, that it is an assertion on, on the part of, of Adam and Eve or of God through Adam and Eve, that Abel has the spirit, but Cain didn't. Cain was somehow acquired. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was acquired by Eve. <laughs> and that's the real distinction between Cain and Abel. Clifton asks, therefore, if Genesis 4.1 is unintelligible and can scarcely be translated, still less understood, How can one prove anything by quoting it? Additionally, if the words are a gloss, where is the foundation for such a premise? In other words, their corruption doesn't even make sense, that they really can't prove that. It should then be quite obvious that we need to look somewhere else for the answer. Fortunately, we do have other sources, but there are those who refuse to allow them in spite of the corrupted Hebrew. And Clifton is talking about people who simply insist that Cain must be the son of Adam at any cost, that they just refuse to acknowledge any other possibility.
1: So, so back to those lion scribes, that they, <clears throat> not just the Lord, they might have had a snip on that verse. They, They may have cut something out that... You know, we can only theorize what it really said.
0: Well, absolutely. And and men have been trying to fix Genesis 4 since the dawn of time, and, and we're going to see that shortly. It, it's, um, um, it, it's sorry, Genesis I was just
1: going to say, just just to clarify it. So the verse actually just says, I have gotten a man Yahweh. That, that's all it says, and, and you can immediately look at that and go, huh, that doesn't make sense.
0: Well, well, right, and and that is also a matter of interpretation, but because in Hebrew, the word "f" by itself means "with," but "f" and the article are also used to distinguish a certain entity, right? at a distinct entity. In other words, when Adam is created in Genesis chapter chapter 1 verse 26, the word is only Adam standing by itself. Adam, meaning man or the adamic man in general, right? But where Adam is described as having been created in detail, in genesis chapter 2 the word is not simply adam we see adam again by itself in genesis chapter 5 but in genesis chapter 2 the word is f ha adam f ha the article adam so it refers to a particular man so for that reason the translators write they don't write man in Genesis chapter 2, they write Adam with a capital A as if it's a name because it refers to a particular Adam, a particular and, individual. And, so here, And you can't
1: do that with Yahweh, right? You can't say a particular Yahweh because there's only one Yahweh.
0: Well, here, that's what the Hebrew does. Eth ha Yahweh. It in... Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Now, you shouldn't have to do this with Yahweh, because there is only one Yahweh. And I agree with that, right? But it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. I'm being silly. If you look at the last Hebrew word in the the Hebrew version, it's eth-ha. No, I'm sorry, it's eth-Yahweh. And and it has a mark that <clears throat> it it's a line between two w- two words connecting those words, and the name of the line right now escapes me. Clifton actually wrote on it. However, he wrote a paper explaining this this line. It's Eth Yahweh, but it has that line in it that connects the two words. So without that line, which was added later by the scribes, it should be with Yahweh because it's F, Yahweh. But there's no article. There is no article. The article makes it a a proper noun where we would write um, Yahweh with a capital Y as opposed to small y Yahweh's. Well, that concept doesn't exist in scripture, right? So when a proper noun is included with Yahweh, it doesn't necessarily bear that meaning. But when it's included with Adam, that F-ha, here it's just F-Yahweh. So that line shouldn't be there. It should just say with Yahweh. So the Septuagint has through God. And they, they took that F and translated it as dia in Greek, which is through or by means of. Or on account of. And, and the NAS, the North American Standard Bible, like the Revised Standard Version, adds the words, the help of, with the help of the Lord. But the, they put it in italics. Those words don't exist. You just can't add them in. So once you start adding words to a verse, when you translate it, what you're doing is you're covering for for something that, that might be corrupted or you're adding your own understanding to the verse trying to translate it. The fact is that Genesis 4.1 is corrupted and it shouldn't be covered for, that the The verse as it stands is unintelligible and can scarcely be translated because there's an obvious problem with it.
1: So, so do they do that with... Um jacob as well would it be f hard jacob uh when it's talking about the particular jacob rather than um jacob as in his descendants
0: well well yeah you, you know i i can't possibly go through every proper noun here in in scripture and check the hebrew real quick but that should be what you find yeah at, at least on many occasions that should be what you find
1: and um, we're going to go through some interpretations where people tried to fix the verse, but but it's clear that there could have very well been something in between that with Yahweh, like with an angel of Yahweh, for just for example, right?
0: I'm looking at um, I'm looking at Genesis twenty seven fifteen, and and it says speaking about the garments of Esau, that Rebecca put them on jacob her younger son and what we see in hebrew is f jacob the same thing we see of jacob that we see in yahweh uh, of yahweh in genesis 4 1 but the context is to put something onto another person so so it's that dative case it would be called in greek it's that dative case of of the word Jacob. But where we see in verse 17 that Rebecca prepared something and put it into the hand of her son Jacob, of her son Jacob, we see the the word for with actually accompanying the word for hand. It's just a particle or a preposition. It's a different word. And then it says Jacob by itself. So there is something <coughs> to say of the context with that word F, or with. But thinking of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, in that same light, it would say, I have gotten a man with Yahweh, which seems to make no sense whatsoever, because supposedly Adam knew Eve, his wife. Even if Eve thought the serpent was a god, Or was God himself as the devil appears as an angel of light, as Paul tells us in his epistles. It still makes no sense for Adam to know Eve, his wife, and she conceives and bears Cain. And for Eve to declare, I have gotten a man with Yahweh, which is what it literally says. And that's why it never made sense to the interpreters and the translators. They recognize that something is wrong with this verse. Admittedly, the interpreter's Bible contributors have a problem with only 41b, the second part of Genesis chapter four verse one, because they can't understand how Eve had a man with Yahweh. However, the authors of the Aramaic targums which are among some of the earliest interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures, also had problems with the verse. So they made what are apparently their own elaborations in order to try to correct it. So we read at Genesis 4.1 in one such targum, the targum Ankelos, it says, and Adam knew Hava, or Eve, his wife who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain, who had desired the angel. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. So that's how the Targum Onkelos, and I can't say necessarily interpreted Genesis 4.1, but that's how the author of the Targum Onkelos sought to correct Genesis 4-1. And similarly, just like the RSV and the NASB corrected by adding the words, with the help of, similarly, the Aramaic Targum, which is known as Pseudo-Jonathan, reads, and Adam knew that Eve, his wife, had conceived from Samael, the angel of death, and she became pregnant and bore Cain, and he was like those on high and not like those below. And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. While we do not agree that either of these readings is correct or accurate, they certainly do represent an early awareness that there are problems with Genesis 4.1 as it exists in the versions based on a Masoretic text, such as the King James Version, and even in the Septuagint, because this must have been a very early corruption. But concerning the Septuagint, in a 3rd century AD work known as the Hexapla, the Alexandrian Christian scholar, Origen, had compiled six versions of the scriptures from Latin—I'm sorry, from Hebrew and Greek, and he set them in side-by-side columns. Represented in Origen's columns were the Hebrew—and I'm amending my notes a little— were the Hebrew, and then a translation of Hebrew words into Greek— and then the Septuagint and versions by Aquila, Symmachus, and Theododian. All three of those men, aquila Symmachus, and Theododian, were men who translated the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek independently sometime between perhaps the 1st century BC and the 2nd century AD, I'm not sure if they all three of them lived in that period, but for the most part, at least two of them did. That That's about the time that those translations were made, is in that period. So, while no complete edition of Origins Hexaplus survived, in Clifton Emmeheiser's aforementioned article, we added... An image from page 126 of volume one of the 1875 edition of the Fragments of the Hexapla, which was made by Fredericus Fields, which was published at Oxford University's Clarendon Press in 1875. Fields' work also added an early Latin translation. At first, when I saw Fields' work, I thought the Latin was actually one of the columns in the hexapla, but it's not. Origin didn't include Latin, but Fields added the old Latin renderings to his edition of the fragments of the hexapla. So I'm going to repeat what follows is, a, is Fields' presentation of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1b, the second half, based on the surviving fragments. And in the Latin, it says, I got a man to help Yahweh. Now, these are my translations of the Greek and Latin, which were presented by Fields, right? In the Latin, it says, and and that's why I I will include a link to this in this program so that everybody could see what the, the Greek and Latin said and see my translation. I got a man to help Yahweh. So that's what it says in Latin. And that interjection of the word help that we see in italics in the Revised Standard Version and in the North American Standard Bible, now we see where they got it from they got it from the Latin. The first Greek reading, I have acquired a man through or by God. And the presence of a definite article there indicates the God or a particular God, meaning Yahweh God, the God of the Bible. The second Greek reading in the Hexapla, The Hebrew and Syriac, this is Origen's interpretation of the Hebrew and Syriac. I have acquired a man with or by a god. And I added the indefinite article there because there is no indefinite article in Greek. But the lack of a definite article indicates or references no particular god. The third Greek reading. I have acquired a man with a lord, and that's because there was no definite article accompanying the word lord. And the fourth Greek reading, I have acquired a man, a lord. In other words, there's no definite article, and there is no preposition for with. I have acquired a man, a lord. The two nouns in that fourth reading are both singular and they're both in the accusative case with no prepositions and that means that in greek they are both the object of the verb and therefore they each describe the same object a man who is a lord i have acquired a man a lord so while these readings do not directly support the entire thesis which clifton had presented in regard to this verse at genesis 4 1 in his original paper, the problem with genesis four one they do support the assertion that the text of Genesis chapter four, verse one was rather problematic to the earliest translators of the Hebrew into Greek, just as the writers of the Aramaic targums, which are also interpretations of the Hebrew, had similar problems and try to rectify those problems by adding their own text. So even though all even though these are all interpretations of the second half of Genesis 4, 1, we see that the Greek is divided and Eve may have proclaimed that she had Cain through or by or with God, meaning Yahweh or through or by some other god, or with some lord, or even a man who was a lord. This is also a reflection of the same problem with this verse that the modern translators of the Interpreter's Bible explain in recent times. If the original language of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 is corrupt, then we can never determine what it actually said and we can only begin guessing. How do you translate and add your own words to add something that could hardly be understood? It's difficult to do without copious notes.
1: Yeah, we'll never know what that verse was in this lifetime, at least, right? That's, that's just saying you have to um, accept, no matter well, well, how clever you were.
0: Exactly. But if we believe the words of Christ... And the words of the prophet Jeremiah, that the scribes had corrupted portions of the law, of which Genesis is a portion of what's called the Torah or the law. If we believe that, then we see problems with this verse, then we cannot use this verse to prove anything. We can't look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 and say, okay, that's it. Adam was the father of Cain, case closed. We need the mouth of two or three witnesses to establish a matter. So show me the second and third witnesses. Show me the second witness, please. Where Abel was called the brother of Cain, if we examine all the Hebrew throughout the rest of the Bible, we find it half brothers because they definitely had the same mother. We find it half brothers, whether they had two different fathers or two different mothers, were called brother. There was no word in Hebrew or in Greek for half brother. The brethren of Christ are a perfect example. The father, the true natural father of Christ, is Yahweh God himself. The mother is Mary. Christ had three brothers, I believe it was, James, Jude, and Joseph, and at least two sisters, according to the scriptures. Now, a lot of Catholics reject that, Oh no, he was, a, Mary was a perpetual virgin. virgin. She never had other children. Well, the scripture tells us and explains Mary's other children. Mary, the mother of James the less and of Joseph, and Salome, Mark chapter 15. Salome was the name of one of the sisters of Christ.
1: And in Greek, it says birth mother, doesn't it? So it makes it. Unshakable
0: well that the the Greek word mater means at a birth mother it it doesn't mean anything else that there's no other way to be a mother, which is ever explained in in the actual script scriptures right that the um it, it would be ridiculous in the mouth of non-believing Judeans to interpret the word mother any other way in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, where it says, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Or in Mark 6, 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? So Christ is the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon. So now we see that Christ had um, four brothers, not three, and at least two sisters, Salome and one other, where it says, and are not his sisters here with us, and they were offended at him. Now, these people aren't Christians. You can't say that these people are using this word mother figuratively because Mary's the mother of all Christians. That's just a lie. These denominational interpretations are are a house of cards and a bundle of lies. They're built on false premises because these people in the first century, when they used these words, did not think like that a mother to them, was a mother. It doesn't say that Mary's the mother of everybody here. Mary's only the mother of specific people. And the brethren of Christ, at this early time, it's obvious that they did not believe him. Not all of them. They didn't believe him. They weren't believers in the sense that denominational churches of today understand believers you can't reinterpret the scripture according to doctrines of denominational churches which are founded on things that on beliefs that weren't held that were not held in the first century by the christians of the first century by the actual apostles (laughs) Their, their denominational interpretations are absolutely ridiculous and out of touch and and are not based in the reality of the context of the scriptures. Especially the Catholics. And they haven't been wrong about it for 50 years or 100 years. They haven't been wrong about it only since Vatican II. They started off wrong about it 1,700 years ago. They were wrong about it then because they had already mixed all sorts of Greek philosophy and Gnosticism and, and other vain philosophies of men in with their interpretations of Scripture, rather than just believing Christ and going back and reading Genesis again. So Genesis 4.1 is not a reliable witness of the identity of the father of Cain. And we should instead understand who had fathered Cain, according to the words of Christ, where he spoke to his adversaries in the temple, and he said, You are of your father the devil. The lusts of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And we're going to comment on that also. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. But being a murderer did not make him a devil, as there were many murderers in scripture. Even King David was a murderer, and they were never called devils. Where it says, and the father of it at the end of this verse, the Greek may just as correctly be read, and his father. Referring to Cain's true father, who was a devil. If Cain was a devil, it was for one reason. Because kind begets kind. So Cain's father had to be a devil. As the Apostle John had later written in chapter 3 of his first epistle, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was all of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. What evil had Cain done up to that point? Up to the point before he slew Abel. His sacrifice was rejected, There is no obvious reason why that sacrifice was rejected. None. What evil did Cain do? There is not one accusation of any evil act. But John knew. He was a bastard. Right, because he was a bastard. Because his very being was evil. Nowhere was Cain a student or a believer in the devil especially since just before he slew his brother, he was attempting to offer a pleasing sacrifice to God, and he was dejected when the sacrifice was not accepted. So Cain, in in his own mind, evidently thought he was doing something right and something good. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been dejected when his sacrifice, which was the fruits of his labor. He was a a, a farmer. He was a tiller of the ground. The fruits of his labor were brought to the altar in sacrifice to God. It is only natural for a man to sacrifice the fruits of his own labor. Rather, John is informing us that Cain was the actual son of the wicked one. As the Greek may be honestly interpreted, That, in turn, explains how certain Judeans, those such as Herod the Great, as he is described in Revelation chapter 12, could be called dragons and serpents and vipers, (laughs) and how Christ called them the offspring of vipers, which refers not to them only, but also to their parents. If you call me a, a bastard, That doesn't imply that my parents are evil, not both of them, one of them perhaps. It it, it was a race-mixed union for me to be a bastard, but Christ is calling these serpents and vipers the offspring of vipers, several times in the scriptures. So that means they were a race of vipers, because both the parents and the children are vipers. They were a race of vipers because they descended from Cain, who was, like, who was a devil like his father and from the Nephilim and others of their corruptions. That's why he was a viper. That's why Cain was a devil. That's why the, this race, which is demonstrably descended in part from Cain and which opposed Christ, that's why. They were called a race of vipers, or the offspring of vipers. But mentioning Edomites, this brings us to the next problematical passage we should discuss, which is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7. And I don't know if you have anything to add to that before we move on.
1: Yeah, this confuses people, right? That they think um, that the Edomites can be trusted, or that there's confusion but obviously um as we said i believe in a previous po- podcast that aram and edom could could be mistranslated because of the letters were very similar in the hebrew right
0: absolutely and, and because god's not a hypocrite the correct reading is certainly aram and and we'll explain that we'll explain that here I thought it was something else I wanted to add, but it's already slipped my mind. I'm sorry. Getting on to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, where the King James Version reads, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. That word abhor is Strong's number 8581 teob which is primarily to abhor or to be abominable or to do abominably we see the same word in job chapter 30 they abhor me they flee far from me and spare not to spit in my face so we see the implication of being abhorred it first appears in deuteronomy chapter 7 Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. A form of teab, which is an active participle of the verb, so it's really the same word, is Strong's number 8441, toabah. And it is found, and that's a feminine form. That's why it ends in the A-H. And it is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, along with another word, which means to hate. And that is Strong's number 8130, which is Sane. And there we read, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Thou shalt not do so unto Yahweh thy God, For every abomination to Yahweh, which he hates abomination Teab, and which he hates Sane, have they or have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. So there we see that abominations are hated by God. Then we see that same word, Strongs number 8130, in Malachi chapter 4, where we read the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh, yet ye say, where how that hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, which they've done right now. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. Now, a lot of denominational Christians say that hate in that passage means to love less. And that's not true. What we saw and the reason why I cited Deuteronomy chapter 1231 is to show that that same word is used where Yahweh hates abominations. And that we shall not, as I cited Deuteronomy chapter 7, bring an abomination into thine house, for thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. So the things that Yahweh hates are cursed. They are abominations. And he hated Esau. It's not simply to love less. It's a lot stronger than that. And it's just as strong or even stronger than we typically use the English word hate today.
1: So so Yahweh hates Jews. He hates niggers. He hates them all. That's what he's saying.
0: Well, right. They're abominations. And we see that throughout the scripture. But people don't understand the language of the Scripture. So if Yahweh had indignation against Esau forever and admitted having hated him, and this happened, as it is explained in in other scriptures, this happened from the womb that Esau was distinguished. Paul of Tarsus explains that this happened from the womb in Romans chapter 9. And Paul of Tarsus is referring to the Edomites in Judea where he calls them vessels of destruction later in that same chapter where the Israelites of Judea are vessels of mercy. Paul's not talking about unbelievers and believers. Paul is talking precisely about not all those of Israel actually being Israelites and going on to compare Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter nine, and and says that the children of e, the children of Jacob have this promise. Where the children of Esau are children of the flesh, they don't have this promise. When we turn to Strabo and Josephus, as we've seen so many times here in, in this series, we've already discussed this that both ancient historians describe how the Judeans and the Edomites were all mixed up with each other in Palestine and shared the same customs. Paul is talking about real physical genetic Edomites contrasted to real physical genetic Israelites. And he said in Romans chapter 9 that the promises belong to the real physical genetic Israelites. That's the whole purpose of that chapter. So if Yahweh had indignation against Esau forever and admitted having hated him, a condition which was which had existed from the womb, because Yahweh knew ahead of time what sins Esau would commit, as Paul describes in Hebrews, that Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. He was a race mixer. How could Yahweh insist that the children of Israel not hate esau in the law in deuteronomy 23 7. making this realization we must ask is yahweh god a hypocrite is he a hypocrite or is there something wrong in deuteronomy 23 7 which is it it has to be one or the other the statement in malachi is not an anomaly Paul of Tarsus cited it in Romans chapter nine in his own explanation that many of the people of Judea were, of his time were actually Edomites and not Israelites, which we also see attested to in the writings of Strabo and Josephus. So the text of Malachi must be true that Yahweh God hated Esau because it stands in Romans chapter nine. And then in Obadiah, Yahweh promises to obliterate all of the descendants of Esau, something which is not yet fulfilled. And in part, he says, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. So why would Yahweh contradict himself from Deuteronomy 23.7 to Obadiah and Malachi? The truth is that Yahweh did not contradict himself at all. However, it is absolutely probable that the scribes made the contradiction for him. There are many places in Hebrew translation where certain letters that resemble one another very closely, especially in the modern Hebrew and cursive writings of the scribes, are frequently confused. Certain letters are frequently confused, and this can be proven in many other places. These occasions are not limited to the confusion of the Hebrew characters Daleth or D, and Resh, or R. But those two letters are probably confused most often. The Vav and the Resh, or the Vav and a Dalit, are often sometimes confused. The Vav and the Yad are sometimes confused. When a scribe doesn't make a perfect letter with his pen and writing in, in a more casual manner, it's easy to confuse those letters because they're so similar. And this is a, an, an aspect of modern Hebrew, which probably came into use about the third century BC, probably just before the Septuagint was translated because this confusion is also throughout the Septuagint, where the Greek was obviously which is obviously different in meaning from the Masoretic text, can be attributed to the fact that a very similar word, having an R instead of a D, was chosen because the R and the D in the Hebrew were confused. In the Hebrew, the word for edomite is properly edomi. It is spelled with letters that we would transliterate from left to right, in English, A-D-M-Y, while the word for Syrian, or properly Aromi, which is Aramaean, is spelled with the letters that we would translate A-R-M-Y. If we wrote the Hebrew letters into English and put them left to right instead of right to left, Edomi would be E-D, or A-D-M-Y, and Aromi or Aramaean would be A-R-M-Y, the difference being only the difference between the R and the D. Yet the Hebrew letters D and R are so similar in handwriting that they were often confused, and they were confused in an early time since many instances of confusion are evident even in the translation of the Greek Septuagint. There are also many examples, even including this very word, of that confusion in the English translation of the King James version. Here are some examples of confusion between the dalet or d and the resh or r characters. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20, where the King James version reads, "I will not transgress," The verb being from the Hebrew word, a bar. The New American Standard Bible, the Septuagint, and other versions read, I will not serve. Reading the verb from the Hebrew word, a bad. So, is it a bar, and I will not transgress? Or is it a bad, with a D? and I will not serve. And they're just two different readings of the same Masoretic text or the same ancient Hebrew in the case of the Septuagint. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 14, where the man called Obedidam in the versions based on the Masoretic text is frequently called Abed Aram in the Septuagint and the Greek version in Brenton's edition is abedara once and abedarum the second time first chronicles 13:14 obedidom means servant of edom obed aram means servant of aram it's that simple and that D and that R are obviously confused in 1 Chronicles 13, 14. Other examples are found in Genesis chapter 10, where comparing the Septuagint with the King James Version. In Genesis ten three we see Riptha in the King James. But in Genesis ten three in the Septuagint, we see Diptha. And then in Genesis 10.4, in the King James, we see dodanum, but in the Septuagint, it's rodanum. So that's two examples right there of DR confusion. However, quite significantly, the word aromi for Syrians is confused for Edomites in Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. Where the context is clearly Edom in 814. And where in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verses 12 and 13, it is consistently Edomites. And, and I'm sorry, I believe that's 1 Chronicles chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapters 12 and 13. So let's read Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 8, from verse 13. And David got him a name when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. You see that change of context? Smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, and he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants, and Yahweh preserved David wheresoever he went. So while the context is clearly Edomites, that it was Edomites slain in the Valley of Salt, the King James translators in verse 13 read the Daleth as a Resh, an R rather than a D, and they wrote Syrians in verse 13. In the version found the version the same story In the version found in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, the translators would do it right, or they would get it right, where we read, Them also King David dedicated unto Yahweh, with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations, from Edom, and from Moab, and from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, and from Amalek. Now, none of those are Syrians. Moreover, and this attributes the slaying of the Edomites in the Valley of Salt to one of David's generals rather than to David himself, but it doesn't matter. It's the same account. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, slew of the Edomites, not the Syrians, the Edomites in the Valley of Salt, 18,000. And he put garrisons in Edom. And all the Edomites became David's servants. Thus, Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. This is the same exact account. But it's a little more elaborate because it tells you how David slew the 18,000 in the Valley of Salt by Abishai, one of his generals, one of his mighty men. But it's 18,000 in the Valley of Salt in the same exact context, it's the same exact story, but they're not Syrians. We see they're Edomites. And it's clear in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that they're not Syrians, they're Edomites. But the King James translators confused the D and wrote Syrians instead of Edomites. There are many other examples of this Daleth-Resh confusion in the manuscripts. So Yahweh God is not a hypocrite. He is not going to trick the children of Israel into loving those whom he himself hates. Deuteronomy chapter 23, 7 should read, Thou shalt not abhor a Syrian, an Aramean, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. And further evidence in support of this is found just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. And there we read, And thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, A Syrian, or Aramean, a Romi, a Syrian ready to perish, was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became there a great nation, mighty and populous. The land promised to Abraham, which included both Aram and Edom, was indeed ruled over by either Judah or Israel from the time of David to the time leading up to the Assyrian captivity. The Edomites were Canaanites, and Esau had married Canaanite women, yet the people of Aram were kindred to Israel. It is they who were not to be despised. Jacob is called a Syrian in Deuteronomy 26.5. If we examine the kindred to whom Jacob was sent back in Genesis to get wives from, Jacob went to Laban the Syrian. So, it is not untoward to say that the Syrian is thy brother, just as much or more than the Edomite as the Edomites were Canaanites by the nature of Esau's wives. So many denominational Christians may protest at this point and insist that all wicked people and the descendants of Cain were killed in the flood, but that is not true. So leaving the connections between Cain, Canaan, and Esau, we must go back to Genesis chapter 6 to discuss another often mistranslated or misunderstood term, which is earth. And I don't know if you have anything to add to that before we proceed.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that the, um, the, the Resh and the Dalat, they look so similar. If you just Google um, Dalat-Resh confusion, the letters are virtually identical, right? And um, they, they should have just kept the Phoenician alphabet rather than going with this script. It, it would have been a lot clearer, right?
0: Well, well, right. The Paleo-Hebrew alphabet is what we know as the Phoenician alphabet. There is all sorts of proof of that throughout the inscriptions of ancient Palestine, of ancient Israel and Judah. It's on balei, it's on clay tablets, it's written in stone. Sometime in the Babylonian captivity, the scribes changed the alphabet which they used to this, it's called block Hebrew. <coughs> this modern Hebrew, for some reason, is called block Hebrew. And it's not Hebrew, it, it's some weird alphabet, and a lot of the letters are exactly similar, or so close that they might easily be confused. The hey And the hef are two different letters. And then a third letter, shaped very much the same way, with only slight differences, is the thav, which is the letter T or TH. So you have hey, hef, and tav, which are sometimes confused. And then you have confusion with dalet, which is the D, and the resh, which is the R, and the vav, which could be a U or a V or pronounced like a W in English. So those three letters are also sometimes confused. And then you have the Vav and the Yod, and the Yod is only like, it it might look like part of a Vav in in the alphabet, but if you draw that line a little too long, it could be confused for a Vav. Or if a scribe running quickly draws the Vav a little too short, it can be confused for a Yod. These letters were not easily confused in the original Phoenician alphabet. They were markedly different from one another. It was much more difficult to make such confusion.
1: Yeah, our European alphabet that derived from that is far superior, right? Since we are the descendants, we only improved it, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the the letters in Hebrew might be difficult to confuse, or I should say, a little more difficult to confuse when they're actually typeset and and they're more distinct. But in handwriting, it's so easy to confuse one from another. Even in precise handwriting, men are going to make mistakes. And in reading, men are going to make mistakes. Yet, you know, in, in that difference in Jeremiah between a bad and a bar, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 2.20, that's not necessarily a, an error from some scribe. It's just a mistake in the way the King James translators read the word that the New American Standard Bible translators were able to correct. So that's a mistake in reading. So there could be mistakes in writing, and then there could be mistakes in reading. A scribe that's copying a manuscript that makes a mistake in reading, Edomite for Aramaean, he might make a mistake in reading where the original text is correct, and making his mistake in reading, he transfers that to his writing.
1: And um, here we're on to the the flood, which um, unfortunately is often translated as the whole world, right? Uh, And that's just unfortunate because the people who, you know, wrote, wrote the King James, they believe that it was the whole world. So they just translated as that when they should have just accurately followed what the, you know, original Hebrew actually said rather than add their words, right?
0: Well, well, right, and, and that's problematical, but what's problematical is the way we use this term earth because uh, the King James translators, yeah, you know, the dawn of science came around the same time that these men were translating the Bible into English, right? Uh, I mean, Galileo, Ah, Copernicus, I think, was just a little earlier. Galileo was born in 1564. And a lot of our view of the solar system, the universe, the planets, comes from Galileo. Not just the view of the shape of the Earth, but the view as a whole, the overall view that people have today. I don't care if you believe the Earth is flat. It's not what matters. What matters to me is how people interpret this word earth when they encounter it in scripture. And from the time of Galileo, the earth began being described as a round ball floating in space and circling around the sun. And it was called earth. The overall entire planet that was envisioned in the minds of men was called earth. Well... Galileo was born in the 1560s, and he was probably about the same age. He was in another place, right? I think he was in Italy or something. He was in another place, and he was writing in a different realm of investigation. But he was probably about the same age as many of the men who were working on the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. Now, there was an earlier English version of scriptures that there was the Geneva Bible that used the term earth in in, and that was first published, I think, around the time Galileo was born in 1560. I don't remember if there was an earlier version than that because there were a couple of different publications of it. There was an update, I think, in the 1590s or something, but that's besides the point. Did all the translators, at the time they were translating, and chose to use this term earth, did they have the picture that Galileo had in his head? I seriously doubt it. To them, earth was just ground or land. Now, that's one point of contention I have with the modern um, concept of what's being described in Genesis chapter 6. That's one point of contention, and it doesn't matter in that regard. If you think the earth is round or flat or or a damned cube, it don't matter. It's the idea that was in the heads of these men in the early 1600s that matters more. The primary word translated as earth in the Old Testament is Eretz. It's Strong's number 776 and there is another word adama and that appears in Genesis chapter 6 in verses 1 7 and 20 but eretz is the point of contention as it appears much more frequently and in passages such as verse 17 where we read and behold i even i this is Genesis 6:17 even i do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and every living thing that is in the earth shall die now do we have to take that and imagine that the king james translators had that picture of a globe that the whole globe would be covered with water in their minds well no they didn't necessarily have that picture Because that idea was not coming into the popular view until around that same time. And we can't take for granted that the King James translators were that far ahead of the curve. To them, at this time, earth simply meant land. And that's the meaning of the word Eretz. According to BibleWorks software which I commonly use, and the version of the Brown-Driver-Briggs Hebrew-English lexicon, which it employs, the word Eretz is translated in the King James Version Old Testament as land on 1,543 occasions and as earth on only 712 occasions. Now, you cannot say that on those 712 occasions, it means the planet, and on those 1,543 occasions, it only refers to a particular land. The truth is that the word always only refers to a particular land, even if on occasion it is used to describe more land than on other occasions. It just means land. On other occasions, it was also translated in ways such as ground, world, field, or wilderness, and and there are even a few more that I just neglected to mention. So, all of these depend on the context in which the word appears. So it should be evident that in the flood accounts of Genesis chapters 6 through 9, the word Eretz may just as easily have been translated as land rather than earth. And a completely different picture of Noah's flood begins to emerge from Scripture if we only translate the word as land. Likewise, the word Adama was translated as land on 125 occasions and as earth 53 times. So which is it that describes the planet? Neither of them. It's neither of them. It was translated as ground 43 times. And in a handful of other ways at various times, such as country, it was translated as country, So neither of these words refer to the entire planet as we know it, as we now know it, or we now think we know it. Even when they are translated as earth, they only refer to the ground in or of a particular land, as we often use the words earth and land. The entire planet was not referred to as the earth until the English language developed several thousand years after the flood of Noah. And that word earth, that word earth was not set in distinction from the word land until long after the King James Version was translated. They used earth and land interchangeably. They did not distinguish the earth as the planet like writers do today and save the word to describe the planet where the word land is used more commonly to describe a portion of the planet. That was not the case in 1611. I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: Yeah like, yeah, like if you said um, the earth, then that people would interpret you mean the whole world. But, but yeah, as you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that back in the 16th or 17th century, right?
0: No, absolutely not. It didn't. Earth and land were interchangeable words. And, and that's proven in the fact that Eretz is translated as earth over 1,500 times as land but it's only translated as earth just over 700 times. So you could say that it more accurately means land, but the King James translators did not have that concept as the pla- of the planet as earth molded in their minds at that early time. They didn't have that same concept that Judeo-Christians try to force the word to mean today. And there's other evidence of that in Scripture in the chapters right after the chapter describing the flood. So Noah was commanded to take two of every unclean creature into the ark and seven of every clean animal. Then the scripture attests that only eight people were saved through the waters, through the flood waters in the land which was flooded. But if the whole world was flooded, the whole planet was flooded, and, and I probably should use planet in my notes there rather than world. In Genesis chapter 14, we have a reference to people who are called only roving creatures, Which is the apparent meaning of the name "zuzims," roving creatures. Again, in Genesis chapter fifteen, we see that in the land of Canaan there are dwelling the Kenites, or descendants of Cain. Even the Interpreter's Bible admitted that the Kenites are the descendants of Cain, and they certainly are. The Rephaim, who are the giants. And who came from the Nephilim or fallen ones, and several other races that are not listed among the descendants of Noah, which are the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Perizzites, and the Gergeshites. They're not listed among the descendants of Noah. In Genesis chapter 13, where we read of Canaan that the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt there in the land. We see that these people are not merely later divisions of Canaanites, but in fact, they must have been people of other races with whom the Canaanites had later mingled. So we have Kenites, kenizzites Cabanites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Rephaim, and Zuzimes, Roving creatures, we have seven races of people who are not in the genealogy of Noah. Just six or eight chapters after the flood, where the hell did they come from? So we must ask whether Noah was compelled to take two of each of these races onto the ark, or perhaps even seven each. If they were clean. Somehow I doubt they were clean. But even that is ridiculous, since there is a clear record of the types of animals Noah took upon the ark, and it says nothing of people. In fact, the Adamic race was being destroyed, punished, because of those people for which God had sent the flood in the first place. Instead, the correct answer is that the flood was a local flood as God sent it to punish the race of Adam for their race mixing, which we read in Genesis chapter 6. And these other races lived outside of the zone of the flood where the destruction was not complete, so they were able to survive. The flood certainly could not have covered the entire globe. Or these other races of people, and all of the red, yellow, black, and brown people outside of the Bible would no longer exist. They wouldn't be here.
1: Right, and I often hear, well, well if God spared them, then what was the point of the flood? But, but it's clear that Yahweh wanted us to trample down and push these races aside. That, that was always the plan. And um, he gave us a second chance. We failed. So that's why he chose Israel and gave them new laws. That, that's the whole purpose, right?
0: Well, well, the purpose, the point of the flood was simply to punish the Adamic man for the sin of accepting these other people and allowing their daughters to race mix. And God saw that the wickedness of man, Adam, was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So Adam, the the Adamic race at this time, which is probably six, seven generations from Adam, Noah was the 10th generation from Adam, the Adamic race at this time, they agreed to this sin with the Nephilim. The thoughts of his heart was only continually evil, and it repented Yahweh that he had made Adam man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It doesn't say Enosh, it says Adam in every single case here, and that's a specific race of man. The Adamic race was being punished for this sin, not the other races, And Yahweh said, I will destroy Adam, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both Adam and beast, and the creeping thing in the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. And and it's just illustrating the fact that by the judgment on the race of Adam in that land, it's only six or seven generations from the patriarch Adam, when this process begins, maybe eight, so we see that the Adamic race probably had not spread out much further than this particular land, and that the what one of the consequences of that would be that all the animals in the area would also be slain, would die, in the manner in which God was going to destroy the Adamic man that he created. This is an example to us. This is the first example to us in Scripture of the evils of race mixing. Even if we don't understand Genesis chapter 3, then this is the first example of the evils of race mixing. But if we understand the words of Christ, we will also understand that these people are committing the same sin which Adam and Eve had committed in Genesis chapter 3, which is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Except here, they're referred to as Nephilim. and, and, And this, I also believe, is errant as sons of God. Because the Enoch literature says sons of heaven. And and at least one manuscript of the Septuagint says angels rather than sons of God. So we also have contention over the meaning of that verse or the correct form of that verse in early times. So the scribes were hard at work corrupting the scripture. But we can understand this. Through the mind of Christ, as Paul said, we have the mind of Christ in his gospel and revelation.
1: Yeah, and and, and as for the flood being local or the whole world, uh, even if you just think about it logically, uh, how how did all these other animals end up on the other continents? Did uh, Noah travel, drop them off, and and then come back to, to, um, you know, the Middle East? Uh, How, how, you know, how do we have Kiwis in, in Australia but nowhere else? You know, it just doesn't make sense.
0: No, no, it makes no sense whatsoever. That there are all kinds of animals that that are indigenous to South America or especially to Australia and and can be found nowhere else. Wallabies, koalas. In in South America, you have things like chupacabras and, and things like that that are unique to South America. That is all sorts of species in Africa that are unique to Africa. That, that that can't exist outside of their particular climate and food sources. The animals rely on food sources in particular lands. That they may not be able to find food at all in on other continents, in other environments.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's clear Noah just boarded a, a colony of animals that could repopulate And, you know, he could set up a farm and, you know, all that, have enough to restart, essentially.
0: Well, absolutely. And that's why he needed, um, I don't know why it's an odd number. I don't know why it's seven, except that perhaps one of each would be eaten on the ark during the time of the flood. I don't know why it's (laughs) seven of each clean animal, but it is an odd number. It's seven, but it's only two of each unclean animal. Because you're not going to eat them. You're not going to harvest them. But you're going to eat the clean animals. So you need more of them to start out with if you're going to survive and practice husbandry, right? Yeah. And that also tells us that the laws of clean and unclean animals existed before the law. Before the law at Sinai. So we should keep them. In my opinion, we should certainly keep them. Because they transcend the laws at Sinai
1: yeah noah wasn't a vegan soy boy right
0: <laughs> well absolutely not but he also probably didn't fry up bacon with his eggs in the morning <laughs> okay thanks for being here it's been wonderful this is another long one i think but that's fine
1: yeah that's brilliant if someone listened to this then it would really help them when they go through the old testament right with the right mindset and that pray. was the intention. And, and also it proves that there's two different races. Adam is the right race, and the others are not of Adam. Right?
0: No, absolutely not. And, and they're the bad races and the goat nations and, and of, of the New Testament, and we'll discuss that next week.
1: Yep, brilliant. Okay. Praise Yahweh. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you.